Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, we have part one of my conversation with Daniel Levin. Daniel Levin is an award-winning writer living in Los Angeles. He holds an MFA in poetry from the University of California at Irvine. His writing has appeared in Provincetown Arts, the Sarah Lawrence Review, the Westchester Review, and the Bennington Review. During his time at Sarah Lawrence College, Dan, as a 19-year-old sophomore, got involved with Larry Ray, the leader of what turned out to be a dangerous and abusive cult that started on the campus. Dan has written about these harrowing experiences in his new memoir, Slonim Woods Nine, a stunning firsthand account of the creation of a modern cult and the costs paid by its young victims. Here's part one of my conversation with Daniel now. I am very happy to have Daniel Levin on the show today, who is here to talk about a situation and the aftermath of a situation that some of you may have heard about, some not. It's a situation I've followed closely and have worked with some of the people involved in it. And I was hoping, actually, that someone would come forward and say, actually, this happened to me too. And I want to be able to tell my story. And not only are you coming on the show, but you published a book about it. So there's so much for us to talk about. So take a moment if you can and introduce yourself and let people know a little bit about you. My name is Daniel Levin. I wrote the book, as you mentioned, Slonim Woods 9, which was about my experience having uh, encountered Larry Ray, who is a uh, a, a friend's dad in college and my relationship with him and, and the group of friends that I lived with turned into a manipulative group, uh, an abusive, coercive cult. So after two years living in that situation, I extricated myself and was surviving, repressing just trying to figure out how to how to live with that for years. And then about six years later, I started writing about it. Okay. And I'm so glad you did. And so this is all at Sarah Lawrence. Well, to be fair, it begins at Sarah Lawrence. Right. It begins at Sarah Lawrence. And that makes it very interesting additionally, that it's something that can happen in a place where you assume there's going to be more oversight, where there are going to be more safeguards in place. A lot of people sending their kids away to colleges, universities would not at all expect this to happen. And truth is, it's a rarity. But when these things happen on college campuses and other places that are supposed to be, I think, protected to a certain degree and insular to a certain degree, it can actually educate schools about what to watch out for and provide then resources for people to go to. Um, because usually if this is the first time it's happened on a campus or they think people won't know who to go to and there aren't people in place who understand this. So it's a good piece of kind of education and prevention for the future. Although I wish something had been in place for you while you were there. 
Let's talk a little bit about that. So we'll start this chronologically. What year did this take place? What years were you there? Um, so I started at Sarah Lawrence as a freshman in 2009. I met Talia, who is Larry's daughter, in freshman year in 2009. He moved into our dorm in 2010, in sophomore year. And then I was involved with him and, and with the group through uh, about halfway through my senior year. So that was 2013. So about two years. So when you use the phrase, when he moved in, so you're talking about a dorm and it was on campus? Yes, yeah. So it was on campus. And I can speak more broadly about Sarah Lawrence, uh, about how that school feels and, and how the layout works. I also think you bring up an important point. I think that there's potentially a lot to be learned here from what happened. And, and there's possibly a really valuable lesson, not just for Sarah Lawrence, but for parents and for other schools. But anyway, I, I will say, so Sarah Lawrence, a fairly distributed campus. You've got a bunch of buildings that sort of operate as discrete units, not so much like we might imagine a quad with big dorm buildings and everyone's around every dorm all the time. They're more sort of like separate little communities dotting uh, like a wooded hillside, we might say, um, in a sort of suburban landscape. So the Slonum, Slonum Woods buildings uh, are a set of what might look like kind of modern condos. They're each one, each dorm is its own building. There's a set of them. They're along a path. If you're walking from the center of campus to, say, the gym, you're going to pass the Slonum buildings. You know, they're on campus, but they're not in the center of campus. In general, this is true at Sarah Lawrence, but I, I think it would be fair to say that it's true at a lot of colleges and universities. Overall, yes, there are young people, but, you know, there's professors walking around. There might be guests or visitors or who knows, you know, people of all different ages. So I don't think that it would feel that shocking for anyone to see, you know, a 50, 55-year-old man walking around or it wouldn't immediately raise any alarm bells just that, that he's there at all. The fact that he began staying in a dorm, I think anyone would say is questionable, but it was possible to fly under the radar. You know, it was possible to come in and out of our house, which didn't have any kind of security besides a door, and, and exit and enter campus without really being noticed. You know, there's it's not like there's a big wall around campus that you have to, you know, pass some checkpoint. I will also say that security at Sarah Lawrence, perhaps more than other universities, is, is very lax. Um, they were more focused on finding the pets that students were illegally hiding in their dorms or breaking up parties. You know, the things that they were trained to look for more than manipulative or abusive individuals living on campus who weren't supposed to be there. Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually visiting that campus one time with one of my kids who was looking around uh, for colleges. The campus itself is very beautiful, actually. And you do get this feeling that it's very mellow and safe and you don't feel like you have to watch your back. Uh, so I could see how things can just happen around you without you being aware. And yes, I also did see a lot of adults. And you're right, you don't question it because of all the professors and others who, who work on campus. What was the reason, though, 
that he moved into the dorm? What was the reason that was given? Yeah, so when I met Talia, his daughter, in freshman year, she had she was friends with my roommate, Santos, and then um, they started dating. And to know Talia was to know about her dad. It so completely consumed her, her identity and her life that her dad had been put in jail unjustly. He had been the victim of this conspiracy. He was this heroic man uh, who had done work for the government. And, and you would hear all these stories and kind of be constantly lectured about the terrible things that had happened to her and her family. And so that sort of made up some of the background of my life as a freshman at Sarah Lawrence. Going into sophomore year, we all decided to move into a dorm together, essentially, without getting too into the weeds. The way the housing system works at Sarah Lawrence is if you sign up as a group, you can get better housing than if you just try to do it alone, which is how we got uh, Sloan Woods 9. And sometime in sophomore year, Talia let us know that her dad, the victim of this conspiracy, was finally getting out of jail. We knew they had been separated for years that her mom, according to her, was abusive, that Talia had emancipated herself from her mom, that she had lived in homeless shelters and managed to get herself into Sarah Lawrence. Finally, her dad was getting out of prison. First of all, they just wanted to see each other and he needed a place to kind of land before he figured out his next step. Would we be okay with him, you know, sleeping on the floor in her room or sleeping on the couch sometimes? And I don't think any one of her seven roommates felt that they had the wherewithal to say no to that. It is a big ask looking at it in hindsight, but we didn't know anything about Larry except what she had told us. And it felt as if we would be extending the harm that she had already be experienced. We were, you know, we were living in it with such privilege as it was. Like, why not let this man and his daughter reunite? Right. I mean, with this send up, how can you say no? This is a combination of things that I hear all the time with people who are manipulators, that they are usually uh, portrayed or portray themselves as the victim, that they have been wrongly whatevered, fill in the blank. People don't realize how good, how wonderful they are. The other parent or the other adult who is the threat is the one who's demonized. So there's usually parental alienation on that side with a lot of mythology around how bad that parent was. And then this parent is the protector. And also because they've been unfairly crucified in the past, right, how can you say no? And here you care about Talia. And so why would you keep her from this father who she's been longing to be with? I mean, it is such a perfect, it's like wrapped up with a bow. Totally. Yeah. Perhaps this is off topic, but part of why it feels so important to me to talk about now is that I had no awareness of any, like that model was not something that I had been exposed to at all. This was the first time that I'd ever encountered anything like this. So you're just not prepared, you know? And so when we talk about opportunities for a school like Sarah Lawrence or for individuals to learn from this, it's just about seeing this as, I mean, yes, it's, it's unusual maybe, or, or hopefully rare, but it's not unheard of, you know, and that they're, that, it exists. Mm -hmm. 
And it has happened with some other families I've worked with. They got in relationships with people who had their parents move in to the dorm and they had set up a racket. They were sort of siphoning money off of people and everyone was supposed to keep things secret. And you felt in order to honor these people who also had been had had rough lives or who had been abused or in some way, you were supposed to feel protective towards them. I mean, it's happened in a lot of different contexts. So yes, be mindful, be aware if there is an adult living where only college students should be, there's something off about that situation. But you're right. If you haven't dealt with it in the past, you wouldn't know what to watch out for or to not trust the veracity of the story. Totally. I feel like it's important to mention or to talk about just what college is or what it's meant to be. You know, I think ideally it's this period of time, people who are generally from like 18 to 22, you're vulnerable, you're individuating from your parents, you're defining your identity. And that means a lot of exploring and openness. And what Sarah Lawrence does, which I think, you know, to its credit, is it gives students a lot of room, you know, to, to do that. It doesn't even, you know, there are no majors at Sarah Lawrence. It's like full exploration. And that is scary in itself for a young person because everything's open-ended. There's no adults telling you what to do or what you have to do. And there's no clear or easy answers. And I think there's a lot of value to that. It just happens that in that environment, if you're not looking out for the adult who's not supposed to be living with young people, it makes them very vulnerable to that type of manipulation. Because for me, Larry showed up I, you know, I happened to have just gone through a breakup in addition to everything else. I was trying to figure out what I wanted my life to be. And this man presented essentially as a father figure and just said, you know, I can, I can give you those concrete answers to your abstract questions. And that was very appealing. Oh, very appealing, very kind of calming too, and centering. And it sets up something that I talk about on this podcast a lot, which is this technique of reciprocity. So here's someone's going to be providing you with something, whether they're right or wrong with their information still, then you feel indebted, you feel you owe them. And then what they ask of you, you're going to do, whether it is to keep the secret or anything else. And that's what was happening there. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of two levers at once, right? It's, the feeling absolutely that this man who, what we had been told was he was this incredible professional, so it sort of worked with the government. It makes me almost embarrassed to say, but you know, I became convinced at some point that he was essentially this like super spy. He'd done all this work with the Defense Intelligence Agency. There were photos of him hanging out with Gorbachev and with, with uh, George H.W. Bush that I, I still can't quite explain. You know, so the fact that he was giving his time to help us, it felt like an incredible gift, you know, at least on paper. And so, yes, there was a sense of sort of owing something back. And then the other side of that was that it did genuinely feel good, you know, to receive validation from this person, to receive a sense of clarity, you know, about how to live life and, and how to think and feel about things and, and to be told to be told what to do, you know, there was a, a certain kind of relief to that. So those two things, you know, genuinely wanting more of it at the time, and then also feeling if, if I did step away, or if I did listen to the part of me that said, I don't actually want this so much anymore, that that was somehow a betrayal of his investment in me. 
Right. And it's interesting that when you say you, you think back and even just saying it, you feel, <laughs> I believe this, but of course, why, why would you not? Um, because if you haven't dealt with that personality before, plus you have confirmation from his daughter. So there's no reason for you to doubt it. What's also interesting is the fact that he had these pictures of himself with these world leaders. Why was he showing them? I mean, that certainly was to right, to portray himself as um, being somehow a significant person. Although you can have your picture taken with anyone, just as Keith Ranieri, who was the head of Nexium, who has a picture of himself with the Dalai Lama. So there you go. I'm curious just about sort of how it progressed, but I have one question first, which is in retrospect, with your first impression of him, did anything feel a little off? Oh, absolutely. I think and that's part of what is, I, I guess, sort of extraordinary about this this person is that I don't think anyone encounters Larry Ray and feels like, oh, this is a normal guy, you know, or like this is someone I feel comfortable around. I'll just say for myself, when he first moved into our dorm on campus, he seemed very strange. You know, he did. He seemed like he he talked incredibly quickly and to be around him was to be sort of trapped in the orbit of this black hole where you would never get out of a conversation. He just talking, talking, talking and telling stories about himself and talking about things for which you had no frame of reference. You know, he's talking about the war in Kosovo and how he was responsible for ending it. And, you know, I don't know anything about the war in Kosovo, so sure, you know, but I can't, that's a one-sided conversation mm -hmm. or about how he was responsible for retrieving Stinger missiles or something. And I don't know anything about that. So it wasn't like fun to talk to him, you know, and I was in college and he was also my friend's dad, you know, which is kind of a bummer. No offense to dads out there, but I'm just trying to have a good time. I was in this relationship and, and navigating, it was my first long-term relationship and trying to navigate that and just being at college, you know? And then this guy was around and he seemed relatively harmless and he would order, you know, just a huge amount of food from the Italian restaurant down in, in Bronxville nearby. And, you know, he was himself Italian and that was sort of something about it was charming. And he wanted to like teach us how to eat right and, and all these things. And there was a very a sort of a dad energy to it, you know, so it seemed fine. And, and I started to see more and more my friends, at least a few of them, well, they would start to sit down at the table and accept the pasta from down the street rather than go to the, the dining hall and eat the bad Sarah Lawrence food. And, I, and more and more I'd see, okay, and so now when we had all, I, I felt kind of agreed that Talia was nice, but kind of a lot. Now they're like friends with, with Talia and they're, they're friends with Larry and and they're all, they're sort of forming a group. But to my mind, this was only, it was the same as sort of the tectonic social shifts that happen when you're 20, you know, just a different friend group is forming. And that's sort of unfortunate that my friends aren't hanging out with me as much and not really processing the part where my friend's dad is part of it, you know. So that shift was happening over the course of a school year. And... At one point, someone told me that Larry had spent the night in one of my uh, roommate's rooms, but that was explained as she was going through this really traumatic family thing 
and that he was help. They were talking for hours and hours, and he was helping her process through this this thing. And so that's the level of how ingrained this was. That that struck me as maybe sort of odd, but it some. I mean, of of course, now looking back on it, I kind of can't figure it out. But it felt fine at the time. I just like couldn't imagine. And maybe that's part of this kind of experience is that it's. Sometimes I wonder if the abuser knows that they're doing something so strange that it's like so out of the ordinary that it's hard to make the leap. Like you, you would have to be really confident in your beliefs to say, well, he's probably you know, sexually assaulting that young woman in her dorm room. That's a big ac- accusation. So over the course of the year, that's sort of how things were developing and going into the summer after sophomore year, I wanted my life to start. I wanted to move into New York. And I was looking for apartments with friends and nothing was really panning out. Everything was expensive. I had no money. You know, I was working as a van driver on campus. And my girlfriend and I broke up. And my friends essentially said, you should talk to Larry. You know, he can probably help you with, or I, I guess I'm getting events kind of mixed up. My, uh, my girlfriend and I hadn't quite broken up yet, but it was like sort of, it was stumbling towards that. And they said, you should talk to Larry. He can kind of help you with all these things. And I finally agreed because, again, it it seemed, you know, what was the harm of sitting down for coffee? And how could I have known that the harm of sitting down for coffee was so incredibly extreme? So let's pick up the coffee conversation in a moment because I do want to hear about this. These are such pivotal moments. And going back to your question, do these kinds of manipulators know that they're doing things that are so out there. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. What happens for the other people is that people want to make sense of things. They will accept justifications if they seem reasonable, uh, if they seem believable. Manipulators rely on the fact that we assume that what is true for us is true for other people. Right. And if you were with a girl in her dorm room late at night, it would be to help her if it was not your girlfriend. Right. It would be because she's a really good friend and she didn't want to be alone or something innocent. And so there is a presumption of innocence if you are a trustworthy person. So people do get away with more, unfortunately, because of that. Yeah, it's also it's part of what I try to communicate in the book is that, I mean, I don't like to speak universally, but I I think that this is true for most people that we just feel like we are relatively normal. You know, I felt like my life is is normal. I'm a normal person and I live a normal life. And the idea, the, the people that this happens to, you know, that who encounter someone this abusive or the people who get drawn into a cult or the people who are even, you know, have some proximity to someone who's abusing someone. To me, that felt so far outside of the life that I imagined I was living that it just didn't seem my brain on its own would do almost anything to just explain this as normal, to just sort of flatten it into the fabric of my life. You know, I'm just a young person who's going to college near New York and this guy exists. Plus you're busy, busy with other things, right? You're taking a number of classes and so you have your own life. So you have your own distractions from needing to put this puzzle together. So here, okay. What's so interesting, too, is that here you're saying that you're having some issues with your girlfriend. These other people have come to believe that he could be a good source of support or wisdom, right, in terms of relationships, right, in retrospect, you can see the irony of all of that. So here you sit down and you have coffee, lunch, some time with him. What happens? 
Yeah, so, and I should say, a part of what I would learn later is that they're also behind the scenes between my friends at the time and Larry. There were conversations happening about the rest of us living there at Slonum, about how we were sort of, we were lost or confused. And there was, there was a bit of pressure being applied on them to kind of bring others into the fold because we, we would be so lucky, it would help us so much, that kind of thing. So that's sort of where that was coming from. I sat down with Larry for coffee at the Starbucks uptown that I I don't think I knew at the time, but was like two blocks away from the apartment that they had moved into in Manhattan. And the conversation, it's sort of, it's a whole chapter of the book. And it was really hard to try to sit down and make someone feel what it's like to have that first encounter with a man like this and how that shift from, okay, this is a normal human being to this is something else entirely. And you sort of, you start to subjugate yourself to their presence and power, I think pretty quickly. So he was asking me pretty pointed questions in a way that felt like it sort of cut through the the bullshit of our normal interactions, you know? And, And I felt some part of me said like, thank God, you know, he's asking me about my family and he's asking me about even about sex and about my sort of my insecurities and all of these things. He's asking me about my sadness and my, my potential depression and that sort of thing. And he's asking me about whether or not I feel good about my life, you know, and uh, I grew up in a family where like I wasn't asked a lot of questions about how I felt, you know, it was like, being seen, you know, just a little bit for the first time. And and not only that, but it was paired with all this validation, right? What I would come to learn as love bombing, right? Being told how special I was, that he had seen that from afar, you know, that the thought he had thought about me. And he gave me the sense that it would be, not only could he solve these problems for me, that, you know, he, my mom was sick and had been my whole life, that had sort of Uh, confused or dissolved lines of communication in my family. You know, I felt pain, sad all the time, all these things that, that not only could he solve them, but that it would be easy for him, you know, that that was no big deal. And all those things we could almost brush aside. It's sort of, that's not the priority. Once we solve those problems, we can help you become, you know, a, a, a super effective person, a person like Larry, right? Um, and that became very appealing over the course of a conversation that without me really noticing had extended the whole day. And we had been talking for hours and hours. I think it was something like uh, conservatively, I think in the book, I say like six hours. I, th- I think it honestly may have been longer. And at the end of that conversation, it was nighttime. And we, and, and that in itself also felt like magic. Like how did, how did he do that? And we walked out of the Starbucks and around the corner and there was a limousine waiting there and the someone opened the door of the limousine and inside were all my friends and they had all been sitting in the car waiting for the whole time all day i didn't really understand that until later when i would have many experiences of just sitting in a car waiting for larry not knowing really what he was doing for hours upon hours you know but that was the level of power that was being exerted here. And that, and that, that isn't even like physical or sexual abuse, which would come later, but just being able to make people sit and wait for you for however long you want.
Thinking back also, you know, you became a person who was also waiting. What were you thinking while you were waiting? What do you assume your friends were thinking while they're sitting in this limo for hours and hours? Once we get into the realm of me trying to figure out what my friends were thinking, it gets complicated very quickly. But when I was in that position, it evolved over the course of my time there. At first, I was really trying to believe that Whatever he was doing for however many hours, there was a good reason for it. He was probably helping someone that somehow by waiting, I am helping whoever that is. Um, I'm doing my duty kind of. I'm on call. Um, He may need me at any moment. There's also this sense of, yeah, duty is the right word. You know, like I, I just was in jury duty, for example, just last week. And I was sitting there in the courtroom waiting for the judge to decide what they were going to do. And and you're not supposed to use your phone. There's sort of a sense, I had a book with me, but I sort of felt like I shouldn't read the book because that would disrespect kind of what was going on or the honor of the room. And that's how it felt. It felt like we were on a job, you know, and and that we would get in trouble if we were to even like be on our phones or be reading or, you know, listening to me, to, to do other things and not be entirely focused on the mission became explicitly militaristic, that that would be somehow a betrayal. So interesting. Yeah, I was thinking when you were mentioning that the door opens and your friends are in the limousine, I got this vision of them sitting in like a hospital waiting area, right? Or visiting room, um, just waiting while the doctor's working on your friend. And you don't want to leave because you want to get the news, make sure everything's okay before you go. And you're there being supportive, even if you're not there. So it's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. And the, the energy when I did you know, except that I got into that, the the glow of that limousine was sort of like I had just survived surgery and recovery. You know, they were all, everyone was so excited. Finally, you know, I had, I had been treated, sure. And that I was going to be okay. It felt as if, as if everyone had been diagnosed with a disease that they didn't know they had. So thank God we've been diagnosed and now we're on a treatment plan, you know. And also, God, I, I, you know, if only everyone else knew that they also had this disease. Right. You know, when, when a person, and this happens a lot in cultic groups and in controlling kind of relationships, in a lot of um, self-help groups, large group awareness trainings, you are given diagnoses that might be right, often are off, uh, or there are many more that you're given so that then they have material to use to make you better. And then they can cure you of that thing that you didn't have. And they're the only ones because they're the only ones who have talked to you about that and really understand it. I mean, it is so, it's so genius, but in a, well, you know, in an evil way. And it's part of what makes the experience so confusing, I think, is that, like you just said, not all of it is necessarily wholesale incorrect. And so for me, I just, I wish, you know, if I were to be uh, trying to change the past, I just wish that I had gotten a chance to go to therapy when I was uh, younger or, you know, 18 and just been able to talk to a professional about the fact that I was, you know, I, I had childhood trauma. It was complicated. I think it would be fair to say I had depression or something like it. 
But instead, I was just living with those things and had no language for any of it. And it was, I, I thought maybe that's just how people feel. And this guy came along and said, no, you, you cannot feel this way. And in fact, the fact that you feel this way is extremely unusual. And it's special. And I've sort of identified you because of my ability to, to see these things. And I can, I can fix it. Which is very exciting and can feel very much like a drug because you can be on a high from that. Did it feel like a high? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially that first conversation was like the first big hit of a drug. And it was an amazing feeling, which now looking back on it is just the first time that I got to talk about a lot of things that I had been holding inside for so long and to get to be open and vulnerable about things. You know, I just, I, I was so scared to talk about my fears around sex that I just like hadn't had those conversations of sex and sexuality and just questions, you know, that should have been possible to explore in college and maybe would have been. And I think that that sort of freedom felt like a high and then for the next couple of years, I was chasing that high in a lot of ways um, and getting little bits of it and always wanting to feel like I was special and I, I wanted to get back in that spotlight and, and all of this other stuff, the, the abuse and the pain and the punishment, that's all sort of, you know, it's extra. It's like a, a weird problem that I can't really explain because what's really going on here is that I'm on a program that's going to help me feel that way all the time. Right. It says so much about what we need, what we all need. Like you're saying to feel seen, to feel heard, to be able to speak without judgment, really feel free and understood. And it's very primal and it's so necessary. And it's so important as a message for families, for partners, for everyone out there to be that person for another person. Because if you don't have it, then, right, you might then trust the first person who provides it for you without questioning why they want this information and what they're going to do with it. Because that's the important part of this story too, right? Why is he collecting data and how is it benefiting him in, in order to do that? The other thing you mentioned was that you were chasing that high and you would get glimpses of it. There's something that creates a lot of emotional dependency. It's this idea of intermittent gratification. So, right, it feels very good. And then you keep wanting to get the smile from the person who doesn't smile often at you or uh, the good grade from the teacher who rarely gives out an A. And because it feels so good when it happens, it sort of turns people into puppies, like they following after somebody to get that, to get the pat on the head. And so all of what you're talking about, even though it's not something you ever thought would happen to you, I mean, who thinks this, but they're all very natural human reactions to these sorts of things. I'm, I'm wondering also just as things progress, you know, it gets, it gets darker in the story. I'm curious just about the relationship between Larry and Talia. What was their relationship like before we get into the other relationships? Yeah. It was like they were teammates against the world, as if they were each other's only trusted confidant that they had been surviving and protecting each other for at least Talia's entire life. And 
you know, if there was any kind of hierarchy that emerged in this group, she was right, you know, at the top of that hierarchy, you know, a, a step below Larry. But she was also used as a justification for everything, right? That he wasn't hurting us just because he wanted to. He was hurting us because we had hurt his daughter. Or she was used for a certain kind of credibility outside of the group. You know, if he was trying to elicit help from someone, you know, maybe from his past or someone he might know in law enforcement, that kind of thing. He used the idea that his daughter was a victim of abuse from her mom, that, you know, these little girls had gone through all these horrible things, and then using that guilt to get someone to do a favor or something like that, you know, and it, it also was part of the mission that we felt we were on, you know, this these horrible things had happened to these young women. And how could we not turn our entire attention to righting that wrong? Oh, my goodness. It, I, I want to say it's so thick. Like, how do you turn? It's like the walls are closing in. Then when you're so stuck in it and there's so, so many immediate answers and reasons and justifications, it's very hard to kind of gain any kind of perspective, a vantage point, because you're in it. And it's constant. So there's also that, that you don't get time to step back, even if you are still in it, if you're, you're literally in the apartment, you know, that sort of thing, you're in the, the location. It's, you're so constantly, you're either doing something for the group or for Larry, right? Or you're being berated, or you're sitting and observing while he does that to someone else, or you're in a car just waiting, you know? You're, it's always active and you're not even getting many hours of sleep, right? So, so you're also just kind of raw, but there's just very little time left for independent thought. Okay. Wow. Wow. And so, right. I think then we will be hearing about this next part with sleep deprivation, getting berated. I mean, that's also from this work that I do, that's also textbook, but you would have not seen that coming. There's no way, because here's this person who's so helpful, benevolent, kind, a therapist, a savior. I'm wondering also about your family during this time. Were they wondering what was happening? Were you able to see them? Were they being demonized by Larry? Yeah. So in a way that that I've also come to understand this textbook, Larry would demonize every followers family, you know, and so my family was not spared from that. Over the course of my relationship with him, he started to talk more and more about the idea, you know, was always pushing the idea that I had repressed memories, which is what he was pushing on everyone. And which is still interesting to me how to how to negotiate that because it's it's not untrue that we might sort of have memories that are harder to access. But it also can be taken advantage, the concept can be taken advantage of to make us feel as if we don't really uh, have agency over what's going on in our own minds. And if we just trust someone else who knows better, they can tell us about our pasts. And, and that's, that's a lot of power to give someone. So he was always trying to push this idea that, you know, that I had some, some abuse in my past, something that would explain why I felt this kind of angst that I was feeling and and he would sort of lead me to possibility, you know, was it my brother had abused me when I was young or my, my dad or, you know, this kind of thing. And that was one area where I always 
we only got there maybe in in sort of the second year that I was involved. And at that point, this voice was starting to get a little bit louder inside of me that was saying that this feels off or wrong in some way. But I, I didn't I didn't know, you know, and I couldn't really make sense of it. So I was trying to kind of walk a line and I would I would let that conversation play out with Larry about maybe my past, but try to try to kind of n- never actually say that I had been abused or to just push back a bit at, at the last moment, but in a way that I hoped wouldn't get me in too much trouble. And then would accept growing degrees of abuse because I wasn't giving that to him. And as far as my family at the time, you know, perhaps part of what made me vulnerable was that, you know, I had developed a pretty robust ability to not tell my parents about what was going on in my life before I met Larry. It's just how it was. And as I said, you know, my mom had been sick throughout my childhood. And I just, I think I figured out when I was very young, how to kind of, how to insulate myself so that I wouldn't cause trouble for my family, which was already, they were already dealing with enough. And so there was a period of time when I was experiencing the most extreme abuse uh, with Larry in this group when I was calling my parents every day. And it's really possible to have conversations that don't really cover what's actually going on. Yeah, which is to say, I just, I, I encourage families to ask your, ask your kids questions. Mm, I'd be curious to hear what those questions should be, actually. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily know the answer to that, but I think we all know that how are you or how, how are you doing is a very easy question to blow through. But I think that, and this is just me guessing based on thinking a, a lot about how I would want to operate as a parent or what maybe I, I want as a child of parents. I think that if you if you show a certain amount of investment in your child's emotional state, you know, like really asking them about their feelings and by extension, you know, uh, an investment in just what's going on day to day in their life. What are they, how are they really spending their time? You know, who are their friends and who are they talking to and what's going on? And then how do they feel about that? You know, engaging with the whole person. One more thing before you go. It is so powerful to hear Daniel Levin start to tell his story. I am so glad you're going to be able to hear the rest of the story next week. Although he really did have to narrow it down just for time's sake that he could fit it into two different episodes. And if you want to hear more about the story, definitely buy his book, Slonem Woods 9, and turn on the TV to find Larry Ray, the cult leader, all over the news because the trial is happening right now. And they're really detailing his reign of terror and torture and control, manipulation, just the cruelty and cruelty and cruelty. What is incredible to me is how this happens, not even so much that it could happen on a college campus where people might not notice it. And you would hope that a college campus would notice this. Meanwhile, Sarah Lawrence is a fantastic place. I visited there. Also, it's beautiful. And so this isn't a mark at all against the college. But 
it still is unbelievable to me that there are people who exist in the world like this, who are willing, who are morally capable of doing this to other people. As much as I hear about these characters all day, it still blows my mind. And that there are people who go to sleep at night having zero remorse or regret, and they're just planning their next day, planning how they're going to victimize these people to even greater degrees. And what I find also interesting is that I'm sure Daniel has had to deal with being asked over and over why he stayed. He's going to talk more about that next week as well. But it's the same question that people get asked when they're in abusive relationships, when they're in cults. There are so many reasons people stay. And sometimes it's because you feel like you've been specially chosen, like you get to be at the cool lunch table. And sometimes it's because you feel indebted to that person because they have made you feel like they've offered you something that no one else has offered you or they have taken their time when they could have been doing all these other things and making money and et cetera, et cetera. And they sacrifice that for you. And it could be because at some point you realize you're too scared to leave because you think that person's going to come after you or you're going to lose all of your friendships who are tied in with this group. There's also something that happens with a lot of people where they just get into survival mode so they don't actually think about leaving. And you'll find that with people in abusive relationships where the thought of leaving gets pushed away, kind of goes into the shadows and it gets replaced with, how do I survive the next five minutes? How do I not make this person angry with me? How do I make this person proud of me? And very often these people have made you feel like you should feel sorry for them, that they've been unfairly judged in their lives, that they are the hero in the story. They're the hero in the world. They're the unappreciated hero, which is a whole other level of narcissism, that they also are somehow protecting you from other people in your life. And you start to feel maybe like they really are protecting you because they've convinced you that everyone else is worse for you than that person is. And then you're not supposed to abandon them. And that's what happens. There is just so much. It's so entangled. It's so much like a web that people really do forget. They don't have kind of the luxury of being able to take that step away and being able to ask themselves if they want to be here at all, or if they should be, or if it's safe to be. I think it is really important, too, that there is this significant piece of something that Larry Ray did, which is that he diagnosed everyone, and he was the adult in this story. So kids, even college-age kids, are going to look to the adult, especially someone who comes across like he's had all this life experience and he has so much insight that somehow he knows, he just knows about human nature. And if he diagnoses you, then of course, as it always is, he's the only one who can fix you. He's the only one who can cure you of that. People like Larry Ray are also masters of distraction. And they will cause infighting and cause competition. And then people will turn on each other. And he used every technique in the book. But if you haven't been exposed to those techniques, you don't realize their techniques. And you don't know what's happening, but suddenly your head is spinning and you don't know how it started spinning and you don't know how to make it stop. What is really important is the fact, though, that he made sure to justify everything that he did. And Daniel talks about accepting the justifications. 
because we want things to make sense and we want to know that we're going through something for some reason or for some bigger reason. But at the same time, usually the justifications don't make sense. You just can't think it through when you're there. So I encourage people to take some time away when they are so caught in a web, if they can climb out even for a few hours and just run through all of the feelings they've had, all of the false justifications for being mistreated that they've been given and see if it makes sense. And if it doesn't, if you have the courage, try not to go back. But if you do feel like you have to go back because you'll be in danger if you don't, hold on to the fact that you've had those insights and let them percolate, let them germinate and grow bigger as you go back. So you can see these things with your own eyes. And sometimes that really helps you to leave when you think something is wrong, but you're not quite sure. And it gets more clearly defined when you take some time away. And then when you go back and you see it happening right in front of you, always know that there are always choices for you. And there's always a place for you to go and people who will care about you. And I think it's so important too, for people to know that while it is very good and important to respect our elders, sometimes they don't deserve it. That should not be based on age, but should be based on merit and behavior. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.